0: Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hi everyone, it's Michael McNutt with Weedy From our September 2023 virtual spotlight on AI best business practices, a special panel looking at AI and privacy and security. Our panel, Ram Ramal, Manager of Data Science Engineering with UNC Health. John Loomis, Head of Technology, AI and Engineering with Softion. Laura Adams. Senior Advisor with the National Academy of Medicine, and Dr. Jigar Patel, Senior Director, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, Product Management for Healthcare with Oracle Cerner. Our moderator, Ed Hafner, Weedy Board Chair and Co-Chair of Weedy's Emerging Technologies Workgroup.
1: A really nice group of folks. Uh, I'm going to start uh, first, uh, let me see if I get my notes here right, Laura. Laura. I'd like to just, since we're kind of new to this, uh, Laura, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the National Academy of Medicine's Healthcare AI Code of Conduct? Yeah, delighted to,
2: And thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'm excited about this topic because I think while AI has been around a while, um, we're certainly in um, sort of a tsunami. It's almost as if we have a, a new pandemic of algorithms that are happening, along with all the hope, the hype, the promise, and the peril that that implies. Uh, And I think as we know that uh, people have now been um, scrambling to put together uh, guidelines, frameworks, and principles, and that's the good news. Um, The bad news is everybody's putting together guidelines, principles, and frameworks. If there's any audience that I ever speak to that understands the value of standardization, it's you. You understand it at Weedy that if we can standardize, we can increase transparency, accountability, we can learn from the things which we otherwise cannot learn from if we don't have some degree of standardization. And most importantly, it increases trust. And this is an area where we're going to have to have an increase in trust because with chat GTP and other large language models, we know that in many cases, the truth is in trouble. And so we've got some work to do here. With the um, NAM AI Code of Conduct project, this was brought to us by a couple of NAM members who said, uh, again, the idea that it was the good news and the bad news. And I got thinking back to when I was the founding CEO of the Rhode Island Quality Institute, which was the uh, HIE for the state of Rhode Island. And we were among the first four HIEs in the nation. And I was so excited when we put together what I thought was just motherhood, apple pie, ironclad privacy and security framework. Um, We admired it a lot in Rhode Island. And then we turned around and got ready to share data with the rest of the nation. And we made out uh, very well under high tech in terms of funding. But I spent a great deal of that money on attorneys trying to reconcile those privacy and security frameworks. And I'm thinking now, let's not repeat this behavior with AI. Let's start to think about, so the whole, the gist of the AI Code of Conduct Project at the NAM is that this is about governance interoperability. Let's start with agreeing on a, a harmonized set of principles. Let's think about this project as a way to bring us together and coalesce first before we spend a lot of money trying to reconcile. And in many ways we are in, I'd say, almost violent agreement on some principles. But there are some that are missing and some that we're not in agreement on. So, our project is under the auspices of the NAM of the uh, Digital Health Action Collaborative. That is co chaired by Peter Lee, head of research at Microsoft, and Ken Mandel at Harvard. The AICC project itself, itself has a very diverse multi stakeholder steering committee that is co chaired by John Rico Ferrugia, the CEO of Mayo. Uh, Bakul Patel, who is the digi- head of digital health globally for Google, and also for and uh, Roy Jakob, who is the CEO of uh, Royal Phillips based in the Netherlands. So with this idea of isn't there some way that we can take what's already been produced and harmonize it? So we've started our project with a very, very comprehensive landscape review. Let's honor and build upon what has gone before us. One of the key principles that we're thinking about here with regard to setting our principles, is let's not invent something that doesn't need to be invented. What is already, is, is there certain, are there certain aspects of our privacy framework that are fine as they are. We don't need to bring new things into the picture, but where we do need to bring new things in, we should. So for example, if you wanna find out who the rest of the steering committee members are for the AI code of conduct, I would recommend that you Google NAM AI code of conduct. Don't put it in chat GTP because it will tell you the project's over and it will, it will show you the code of conduct that hasn't yet been produced. So we'll have a bit of a hallucination there. So with this landscape review, we're looking at four primary areas. What about the literature since 2013? What's been published about this? Specialty societies, medical specialty societies are a bit far ahead in some areas. What guidance have they given to their members, to the people, the specialists that they interact with? What about the US federal government? We know we've got the NIST risk framework. We know that we've got the blueprint for a patient bill of rights for AI, other things that are being promulgated by the federal agencies. So let's take a look at those and bring those into the mix for harmonization. And we also know that uh, we've got companies that like to operate globally and need to operate globally. So I don't think that we can keep our head in the sand and just say, this is just for the US. So we're also exploring what's gone on with the principal sets from the UN, from the OECD, from the EU and from let's see uh, WHO. So we wanna take a look at that harmonized set there and say, what are we seeing here? And we are seeing a lot of agreement. We're seeing agreement on a number of things that we've discussed today in this webinar, but we're also seeing some areas where we think it ought to be elevated to the level of principle. And one of those things of course is that post implementation vigilance. These are not molecules and these are not devices as was said earlier. When you put them in place, they don't stay. They are emergent by nature, by design, by intent. So they're going to grow and, and morph and do things that we wouldn't expect a relatively stable installation of something to do. So that idea of being vigilant afterwards, it kind of begs the, the notion that many of us have been involved in the idea of creation of a learning health system. If we didn't think we needed one before, we need one now because we none of us actually knows exactly what to do with all of this. We are all in a learning mode. This ought to be an all teach and an all learn moment for us. And so I'm just excited about the sharing that's gone on today. We will publish a draft AI code of conduct. That's the synthesis of all of that. And then we'll send that out at the beginning of the year, close to the beginning of a year in a commentary paper from the National Academy of Medicine that we very much want your feedback on. What do you see with this set of principles? Because from that set of principles, we are working now with deep engagements with groups like the Coalition for Health AI, that's Mayo, MITRE, Duke, uh, Stanford, Hopkins, And we're also working with Health AI Partnership, again, Duke and Mayo leaders and all of that. We're working with groups like Aftoraps, uh, which I'm not going to explain that. We don't have time. But there are some of the coolest people that you've never heard of. If you haven't heard of them, there are the products manufacturers and the people that do pharmaceuticals. They have a huge coalition where they work on, hey, let's govern ourselves first so we don't invite Uh, heavy-handed legislation and regulation because we fail to act. So we're partnering with with consumers, with ethicists, with um, equity experts to make sure that once we get this set of principles, we translate it into a code of conduct, which means how do we behave each stage of the AI lifecycle vis-a-vis each aspect of the code of conduct. So that will be the product of this work. We want to be able to give guidance. We want to be able to give really good guidance. And so with that, we'll also translate, as we translate into the roles and responsibilities, the other piece of this that I think is important is, we're gonna have to have some things that sit in the center. Some things that are basically thought of as the commons that we all need. So for example, uh, Duke, Mayo, MITRE, all the powerhouses, Stanford, they're going to be able to vet their own uh, systems that come through, vendors that come to their door with AI. Inner city hospital in Chicago, Rural hospital in Kentucky, in Kentucky uh, Mississippi Community Health Center, not so much. What we know and understand is that in 1948, we declared the idea that the benefit from human technology and from, from technology and advancements in digital type things ought to be a human right. Um, actually, we didn't say digital in 1948, but we've not Failed. We failed on that idea of bringing this into a human right. We also know that digital health, for all its power, has often failed to deliver on closing that, that equity divide. And I'm concerned that AI is set up to widen that divide as well. So we've got a, a big focus on that through all of this. So what should sit in the common? Should there be, for example, assurance or vetting labs that allow someone to take their AI system, their algorithm through it. And then those that are sitting in the inner city Chicago hospital can look at this and say it's safe to go in the water uh, or the small hospital. So there are a number of things too that we think about. Should there be a parsimonious set of um, metrics that algorithms, not all algorithms, but key algorithms, high risk algorithms ought to be um, monitored by? Should that monitoring, should there be a central repository for that monitoring so that we can all learn? So that's sort of the gist of the AI code of conduct project. Again, it's, um, trying to get some governance interoperability at the beginning of a very big tsunami. And we look forward to working with all of you. We hope that you will join the AFTL RAPS group and the Chai group and all of that in partnership with us to make this uh, truly workable in the areas that you have your distinct expertise.
1: All right. Thank you, Laura. I love your passion and certainly your perspective as well. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the group. Uh, you know, uh, I know you had meetings with uh, Michael McNutt earlier, and you had some discussions um, uh, related to what we're going to talk about today. And security and privacy was a big topic between uh, you know everyone that spoke with Michael. Uh, I'd like to understand from your perspectives, and I'll call I'll, I'll call it different orders uh, just to keep you on your toes. Uh, why is security and privacy different, or AI versus any other technology? Ron,
3: we'll start with you. So I think the the component of like uh, that black box or labyrinth is the main reason. Uh, meaning, like if like for example, I'm just thinking about a use case when we lost. If, example, like if somebody lost, like when one healthcare system lost somebody's data in before AI world, they would be able to say, okay, I got this data, I knew was the who was the bad actor, I solved that problem. Mm-hmm. But now somebody might be using that data to train something and give and come back to harm us as a patient, as a provider, anything like that. So that piece, what happens in between that the quote unquote sources making, it's so difficult to decipher. And now people are not trusting the algorithm. And I don't blame them, yes. Like the that's that's the that's the reason it's a little bit different. You can never, I think once it goes to internet, it is always going to be there in the internet from the knowledge of learning or how algorithms are learning these things. It is always going to be there and it's going to hunt us back. And for that reason, I think we need to be really careful on the security piece when AI is involved. Generally, that's a really high bias. we need to make those goals like from the security piece and trust. But in case AI, you need to be extra vigilant just to make sure we didn't we didn't have any misstep in the between. Okay, thank you, John. Uh, um, I'm sorry, Rom. Uh,
1: By the way, speakers, if you can check out the chat uh, as it's going along and you're not speaking, uh, please feel free to answer some of the questions because we have a a boatload of questions to go through here. Uh, Let's go to John, your perspective.
4: I I think what what I liked about what, what Laura said is that I think we have to lead with the policy around AI. I, I I get nervous when you know thought leaders aren't aren't in the forefront of that discussion and, and we rely on governments to react to to the technology. So I think I, I certainly applaud that 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 mentality. And um, as far as security side, I, I think that you know, I treat it as, you know, AI is an extension of data. So as long as you're managing your data effectively, I feel that the that the safeguards are mostly there. They're not 100% there, but they're mostly there. Okay, thank you. Uh, and let's go to a uh, checker. Um,
2: could I just add oh. something to that, Ed, if you don't mind? Sure. Um, I think that your question, uh, if I understood it, was what's different now? Right. Um, and when I think about it, I think that uh, we've had AI around in healthcare for quite a long time. We've been, um, in some ways, a bit slow in adoption, particularly in the clinical areas, quite a bit slow in adoption. And I think that what we understand now is that we've got a bit of a democratization of it, because if you have one of these, you have access to chat GTP. If you're interested in looking at a really thorny patient issue, Um, and you're tempted to load your patient's information into that, you've basically put it on the internet, and it retains that information, it repurposes and uses it, it's it's a large language model. And so I think that's one of the main differences. The, The other ones that I look at are some of the advents of things like voice AI, where now we have such sophisticated algorithms that we're beginning to be able to put metrics to mental illness. So we're beginning to be able to look at things like thymia out of the UK. You play a video game. It looks at your facial expressions, your eye movements, your tone, the voice, the types of things that it it can read so many things about you. And we're getting close to being able to diagnose Parkinson's, bipolar, depression. Uh, We can do that over the phone. We can do that over a TikTok video. So our presidential candidates, somebody that has that type of tool, I think we have a, a whole new world of 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 challenge in being able to manage what it means, we also know that the more that you use AI the more it, the, the more valuable it becomes to you through you giving it information so the more that you release information about yourself, the more it customizes the more and so and I'm thinking we're talking about AI broadly and not just the algorithms that we use within our institutions but um I think those are some of the main concerns that I have.
1: Right. Uh, Do you feel, um, you know, when I think of privacy, of course, you know, keeping keeping your information private. When I think of security, there's all kinds of things: people stealing information, people manipulating the algorithms, people placing in their own codes, and you know, I'm curious: are people concerned about you know the ability to protect those algorithms so that they stay true? I,
2: I think they are. And especially when we think about the use of large language models commercially available, um, I think there is concern that will the large language models with enough sort of um, incentive be programmed to recommend a certain treatment, a certain drug, a certain, uh, there's enough skepticism now. I think we're in a highly, highly skeptical time in our nation. And I can see where this can become rampant on social media, where people are now concerned that um, this particular large language model is recommending this, that, or the other, not because it's the best treatment, but because it's the best-funded um, person talking.
1: Right. All right. Thank you, um, Jigar. Your perspective. Yeah, and you know,
5: uh, the thing I bring to this is I'm a physician as well. So when I think about these issues, security, privacy it's always a struggle with with physicians and clinicians to really um, educate well enough so they truly understand the implications of those things. Um, When you're talking about, it's almost a, there's always this balance between what's convenient and easy to do and security, and then privacy on top of it. So when you talk about having your end users, um, you know, people, put out lots of educational videos and they, you have to do it every year at whatever company you're at. The security implications of using those devices and then having AI layered into them alone is uh, a, a Pandora's box of, of leakage and other things that are problematic uh, when you talk about having a security from a cybersecurity perspective. Now, also, remember healthcare data is some of the most valuable data out there. So you can do so much more than just a credit card or, or other things so that there are bad actors out there that are looking at this as well. And so I think there, if I had to go back and say, as a person that represents uh, you know Cerner for 16 years now, Oracle, um, we have to think about the end user and the education to the end user. And that's every small hospital in America, every small clinic in rural America, all the way to the largest of the large. Um, and even in the large to the large, they get pretty laissez-faire around some of that, those types of things and education. Uh, one of the things in particular, and it happens with electronic health records now into an AI era, the education that happens even in medical school needs to be augmented in a way that can give people that are learning medicine and knowing that these tools are going to be part of their repertoire long term, how to interpret those things. We learn statistics and those sorts of things. This is a, a, another level of, of information, informatics, and then you know talking about AI and large language models and how they work uh, that have to be uh, pushed forward uh, from an education perspective. And that will help to mitigate some of the things around security and privacy as well. Um, to Laura's point around voice AI, it's too easy to Ask something out loud nowadays, and there are solutions that are coming to market that are um, like an Alexa or a Siri, where you can ask it. But that's not the right thing to do from a privacy perspective as well. So there's the ubiquity of it, the, the capability of it, um, has to start with an education piece way back when
1: when people are in training as well. Okay, thank you. We'll, we'll stay with you, Jigar, on the next the next question. Uh, you know, machine. My experience with machine learning was based on the data that you had and you came up with you know different inferences to be able to you know to come up with your own models. Now with uh, generative a- AI as well as now you have public you know data that's been gathered across yeah. many different sources, not just yours. Talk about the implications about privacy and security with generative AI like chat PBT.
5: Yeah, and generative is opening up a whole new box. Um, I have a colleague that has said very clearly, and this gets to a little bit of what Rom was talking about and the UNC was talking about earlier around transparency. We have to have a transparency to what it is and what it's doing to uh, make it safer uh, as well. The generative AI tools um, and having then precision and validity and those other things, so clinicians can trust them as well, uh, have to be built in. I think in the air term, we have to work on things around automation that have review and have the capability of people looking at and analyzing before we can get to augmentation, which is really how do I provide new clinical insights and other things that are coming out of large data sets in large language models. So when you talk about how do we really hone in on utility in the short term and then the evolution to get to those bodies that can regulate and, and provide policy guideline, etc., the the automation things are the things that are low hanging fruit now. We know they can do those things and they have littler Smaller jeopardy is their property, right? Smaller jeopardy compared to some of these other things. When you say you should think about this disease condition with this patient, is that really valid and precise? That's an, an
1: augmentation that comes over time as well. Okay, thank you, um, John. Your perspective.
4: Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the the privacy and security is. You know, particularly around generative AI, I think that I don't know if it's a communication uh, uh, thing or, or a learning aspect. Um, I, I wrote down um, one of our head data scientists says this and it, it reminds me every time of perhaps the limitations of things like GPT. It's, you know, Neil Armstrong was the first person on Mars. Right. So statistically, you may the model may come up with that answer. But we have to have the wherewithal to say, well, gosh, no one's been to Mars yet. So yeah, I think that's when I think of security, privacy, generative AI, I, I think they're, you know, the, the accuracy, you, know, you still have to have that skepticism. You have to be able to um, you know, still retain the, 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 the right level of cognitive you know, understanding of what you're getting. Right, okay. Um, thanks, uh, Ron.
3: So, I think well, when I think about generative AI tool most of the time, and then this applies to pri- more from the privacy perspective, it's more about inclusion and transparency for me and from the UNC Health in general. Um, I think the framework we had is also like the framework we talk about. We build with the team, our team. It's not like we cannot go, we can, somebody can go just internet and find and build a framework themselves. For us, bringing those people who are going to make a decision are going to be impacted by the decision to be on the table. And let's figure this out together. Like as like Zigar was saying, nobody, if somebody says, I know generative AI all, then we need to question that um, answer. But in general, we need to figure it out together. This is a very good tool we need to figure out together. And how to do that is from our perspective, at least is to let's be transparent on how we make decision on saying like which, which case we are choosing. Like, should we start with the uh, uh, incidence denial or should we start with uh, like some kind of automated drafting message per clinician? Every, both of them have merit, but we need to think about how we choose our use case, who's on the table through making decision. And it is going to be really difficult to explain everything under a generative AI because uh, that neural net, all those things, we don't need to talk with everyone else to, for that to counter. Let's have a transparent process from the starting to think about idea to implement the AI to making into the production so that people can trust the process and follow that process to say, I know I don't understand neural network, but I know Ram is there. I know Zigger is there. I know John is there when we are making this decision. So that's how I see, like the more inclusion and more transparency uh, is like going to help us on that the privacy side of things. Right, and to, how about
5: this, to add to what Ram was saying, it's, a, it's also a, a practicality and a quick win situation. right? If mm-hmm. you give them quick wins that are easily trustable, drafting yep. a message, giving you a summary, those kinds of use cases, they get it. The one paradox I'll leave out there just for everybody to think about, and I've described physicians' brains as black boxes. Now we put a second black box on top of that physician brain. So I spent a lot of time trying to tell my engineers how to unravel the black box of a physician brain. Now I'm adding another black box on top of it. So that the complexity therein and the paradox of that is just, could be mind boggling. So those things are real um, and people are, are are gonna have to, you know, teaching an engineer how a physician thinks, it's really hard actually. And you know, I do a lot of talking, just educating. Um, and then, you know, now they've got a black box you're gonna put on top of that. It, it, it's very interesting conversation to have overall.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, Laura.
2: And I, I think that it would be important here to differentiate uh, by what we mean by transparency because some people, I've heard terrific descriptions today. Ram just talked about transparency of the decision-making of the process. And there's, uh, I think when we cross over and we want to, some people kind of demand the idea that we're going to, we understand transparency of how the model works. And I think it's important to understand that These are getting more and more sophisticated and we don't know how they work. So retinal fundus scans, for example, AI, they can tell whether or not they can tell what sex was assigned at birth. We have no idea how they do it. In Australia, they were observing a predictory predictive AI for the use in um, for pregnant moms to find out what likelihood they would be of a preterm birth. And it started spitting out the patient's age. And they said, Oh, this is wrong, because it's it's this patient is this many years old, not that and they realized it wasn't the chronologic age, it was the biologic age. And -hmm. they don't know how they do it, we can look at chest x rays, and again, determine sex assigned at birth. So I mean, there's, I mean th- that's a little bit easier in terms of, of you know, bone size and things like that. But I think that we don't have that capacity, which brings to me this point that for really looking at these, we've got to think about watching their performance um, when they go into practice, when, they, when, they're, when they're implemented, we've really got to pay attention to how they perform.
0: Look for part two of this panel a conversation in the coming weeks. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the healthcare IT communities connect, collaborate, and create solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.